Hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number something. Um, I do actually forget what it is, but this is um, uh, one I've been looking forward to. With me is Martin Epstein in New Hi. York. Yeah. Hi, Martin. Hi, John. Uh, I'm so happy we got to do this. I really am. And this is like a reunion. I don't think there's anything I love more than reunions, John. Well, yeah, it's it's really, it should be fun, I think. Yeah. Um, so we were just talking before we, you know, before I pushed the record button um, about this idea of relevance. And, and I really like that. So if you want to kind of pick that up because because you have, we're, we're discussing it and um, we'll go from there. Right, well, the, the whole issue as, uh, you know, as I'm living my life now, <laughs> you know, I've, I've retired from teaching and I, I, I have whatever, what every writer has always wanted full time to just devote myself to the, the thing itself. And, um, but at the same time, you know, uh, as I do my work, uh, I feel I'm always asking the question, well, to what extent, you know, does this have any relevance to what's going on all around me, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, years ago when I was uh, directing a piece about my mother at Padua Hills with uh, Kathleen Kramer in, in the lead role, uh, I gave her a direction during one of our rehearsals uh, and she just cracked up and she said, Martin, the reason I love you so much is you think everyone has the same problems you do. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like a Zen slap because I knew, of course, that other people are different. But, you know, when I write, I write with uh, a total instinctive feeling that everyone does have the same problems, <laughs> even though, you know, sometimes I have no idea what I'm writing about. And anyway, that uh, that introduces me to this topic, because I, I just off the cuff uh, read this article that I told you about in Harper's, and uh, I just liked the idea, which I'd never thought of before, that uh, relevance really has to do with bringing, with highlighting something, pointing something out uh that gives it a, a kind of viability that brings relief to the others who see it and i think you and i and those we have hung out with uh really work toward that end in theater we uh we want to make relevance into something unexpected and new and that's usually shunned on as being relevant if you will it's avoided you know it's uh yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, you said two things there that struck me. One was, um, you know, offhandedly and, and humorously, I don't never know what I'm writing about. But I mean, that's a sign of a of a of a serious writer, I think. I've always encouraged people to not worry about what they think their play is about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, and, and the second is this, this idea of relief. And uh it 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 touches on a little bit this my what i've been thinking about just the last few days of as as life seems to be increasingly reduced to 
to everybody talking on Zoom and on screens and and um, the 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 loss of a live audience because I think I think that and this goes back to something I, I wrote years ago that I was just rereading about architecture that that when you enter a large cavernous empty space you know an empty warehouse or something there is a feeling of fear but also something is triggered that is that is for lack of a better word I suppose spiritual but also uncanny and that it it is connected on some level to to what one does in theater the necessity of having that that space in front of you before anybody gets on it before a light is turned on it or or a curtain is raised or or any of those things um and and i think that and just to digress slightly robert venturi wrote this book about i think it's called leaving las vegas I was in the 70s about the architecture, vernacular architecture in the United States. But um, he described Las Vegas, which was all signs um, as being designed for motorists to read as they pass. But he also called it an architecture of persuasion and pointed out that if you go to Marrakesh or um, Tangier or somewhere um, and go into the Medina, the souk, you find no signs. Yeah. Um, you, you simply are there to negotiate with um, the seller and you have to talk to him and, and find out really what is for sale and what it costs and so forth, because there are literally no signs. And I think that theater today, American theater today, if it even exists anymore, um, <laughs> is, um, had, but had already become a theater of persuasion in some way. And I don't think that it's kind of a strange kitsch yeah. element that entered it because it offers no relief, right? And yeah. the, the relief somehow comes out of something menacing as well as, you know, spiritual. There's yes, yes. Those things are connected. I don't know. Anyway, that was, that was my... Well, it, it's the whole idea of space is, I think, on some level, which is like our ground zero, because uh, whenever I, it's been years since I've gone to the theater, John. Uh, actually, I saw a play by Richard Maxwell about a year ago, uh, and you know it's very earnest and beautiful. But uh, somehow, it just never, even as uh, experimental as he is, uh, the space was all in the head. You never felt the aliveness of the space because the characters just sat and talked. Um, but the idea right. is when I when a, the lights come up and I see a realistic, for example, space, you know, which people still write, you know, <laughs> traditional stage directions, I'm already almost gone. I'll give it about another seven minutes you know, <laughs> because uh, I'm not just bored, I'm offended. <laughs> yeah, well, but I know, you know, and I can take that a step further because... Yeah. I was, I wrote a piece, like, again, I hate to keep quoting myself, but um, because I saw that this writer whose name I forget, but the title of the play was, I believe, A New Boise or something like that. Mm -hmm. And there were photographs of the play 
and I immediately was bored and offended by the photographs of the play. <laughs> That's bad. Because <laughs> I thought, well, I know what this is, this is television. This yeah. is not theater. Yeah, I mean, right. if I look at photographs of a play by Bernhard or Heinrich Mueller yeah. or, 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 you know, I, you can see the difference. I'm yeah. not bored and offended. That's right. Um, um, I, I look at a photograph of a production of Casper Hauser and I go, aha. Yeah, right. Um, this, this is theater. Yes, you, you, you can get that immediately. Occasionally I'll see a photograph of a play, say it's being reviewed in the, the Times or something like that. And I'll say, I got to see that. But the photograph was so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. Yeah. Um, but the idea of how to keep this, you know, the space is, oh, here's the thing. Space is as much a character, if not more, uh, than anyone else on the stage because space is like our paradigm for geography it's it's absolutely it's the earth turning you know on our little wherever we're doing the play it's the earth kind of spinning and you know it's often taken for granted because um uh directors actors uh, uh writers want us to feel immediately at home when the lights come up even if they threaten that and blow things up later they want to secure us for a moment right that we're right. safe you know and that, yeah. that's right well but i think that's true and and um the I mean, I have a whole theory, which maybe I won't digress into too far about one character plays about monologues, um, because I feel something there is a there is a deficit um, because there is not a, a, a symbolic listener on stage. I mean, when Beckett wrote Crap's Last Tape, you know, there are multiple voices there. Yeah. It, it, it's different. Now, there are exceptions in Bernhard wrote um, uh, uh, one character play and it's quite great, but um, in general, I feel like that that it's almost as if I, you know, this idea of the offstage, which I posited for years and talked yeah. about, that 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 the real energy driving a play is coming from offstage. Yeah, that it's somehow the unconscious, and somehow that disappears when there's only a monologuist talking to the audience and i'm not even sure the mechanisms at work that that um that that you know manifest that way but um it's 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 part of it's akin to this kind of representational realistic whatever realistic means right and and that's the problem and um i argue with somebody at one point i remember saying this but you love strindberg i said i do i love strindberg so well, but he's realistic I said, ah but he's not you know he's not he's so not realistic um he was he was looking for everything that was um transcendent in in the ordinary moment in in the everyday he was looking for that which was mystical and uncanny and and um destabilizing in things that were very ordinary yeah um but yeah there is something there is something um fraudulent or dishonest in um anytime there's a very realistic set today i always think what are you know how who taught you about theater this is if this is how you were writing i you know it baffles me i did you know what i wanted to ask one thing or not ask but touch on i didn't realize you knew herbert blau 
Oh, I knew Herbert Blau. I loved Herbert Blau. Uh, Herbert Blau was my teacher. Here's the story in brief. Uh, uh, I got out of the Army Reserve in 1960. I spent six months in North in New Jersey. You know, I had nothing else to do, and I wanted to avoid the draft. <laughs> Uh, and it, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I was with a bunch of guys and we had a lot of fun in New Jersey. And then uh, I went out with three of them to spend the summer in San Francisco to see what was going on there. The beat thing was almost over. And uh, maybe two days after arriving, I went to a lecture uh, that Blau was giving at the uh, local Jewish community center on modern theater. Now, I'd never heard of this guy. I, had, I remember when the Actors Workshop came to New York with Godot, mm -hmm. I, I and my idiotic 20-year-old <laughs> or 19-year-old fashion said, I'm not going to see this hick stuff from San Francisco. What are they about to teach me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there I was hooking up again, and the guy got on stage and started to talk. And at that point in my life, uh, uh, I could not, I could fake talking, but I, I could not really talk and think at the same time. And when I heard Blau, uh, I just went crazy. And uh, that was like on a, a Thursday night. The, I, I saw he was teaching at San Francisco State. Um, on Monday, I was out at San Francisco State signing up for their graduate program. Wow. <laughs> Thursday, I was accepted for an out-of-towner. The fee was $250 for the year. <laughs> <laughs> if I had been a California resident, it would have been free. And uh, the next semester, I was taking two of his classes. Uh, now, the problem was, uh, in the presence of a mind like that, I was so cowed. I was so, so in love, but so cowed that I could hardly function. <laughs> and I had to leave for a year after that or study with what I call the slower teachers. <laughs> <laughs> teachers who spoke more slowly and who I could converse with. <laughs> and then I went back in the third year. I did this very slowly. I went back in the third year to finish my graduate work and I took Blau again and he taught a course in uh, the craft of poetry, and we read uh, six poets. We read uh, John Donne and um, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins and Blake and Yates and Keats and Wallace Stevens, and we each had to do a paper on one of these, and I did my paper on Blake. Yes. And, uh, yes. I, I, it came about when I read uh, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forest of the Night, What a Mortal Hand or I Could Frame My Fearful Symmetry. And I said, I will either answer this question or quit literature. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a paper and I, 28 pages, and I answered the question. And for the first time, you know, uh, I really felt my voice. I discovered like I was on fire, like one of these Blakean angels. And it was Blau's job to uh, question me in front of the class, you know, and, and test me, you know. And uh, every time he raised a question, I felt like a big bear <laughs> cuffing my little cub. <laughs> <laughs> and the class was cracking up because suddenly I had a voice and even he was cracking up. He goes, you know, like, where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen you around here at all. 
And uh, after that, we stayed in touch on and off for the next uh, 50 years. And uh, I had never shown him any of, oh, actually, I, the first play I ever showed him uh, that I wrote as a thesis, uh, uh, it was actually, he was going to, it was a choice for his doing that in the workshop, either that or a play called There You Die or Tango Palace by this, uh, Cuban writer nobody had ever heard of named Maria Irene Fornes. <laughs> and thank God who chose her play <laughs> because it was so much more, let's just say mature than mine. And yeah. uh, of course, later on, Irene and I became friends and, you know, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. and all that. But I stayed in touch with Blau and the second play I, I showed him was uh, probably, uh, that's, uh, uh, 50 years later and he had already retired and uh, he said he still had six graduate theses he had to work with so it'd be a while before he could get to my play <laughs> so I wrote back and said you know it's you know, my play will hold uh, it'll keep but uh, I have to tell you uh, um, it's a school play and there's a scene in it uh, where a student presents her paper or she you know presents her project and it's like nothing else you have ever witnessed in your teaching <laughs> life <laughs> and three days later I got a lovely letter back from him saying he'd read my play <laughs> and really he gave me uh, uh, you know a real pat on the back and said uh, it's going to be very hard to get this done because the American theater is just not in touch with what you're doing. And he wasn't in touch at that point anymore anyway. I mean, he had, I think he had at some point just really cut loose from the idea of the formal text, you know. All right. He was more into developing plays with his group, Kraken, uh, which. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that, um, because I, I, I didn't really read Blau, um, attentively all the way through until a couple of years ago, uh -huh. three or four years ago, I started to read him and it was kind of revelatory. Um, yeah. I thought, my God, why did it take me so long to read this guy? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I, we all love Peter Brook. Peter Brook is right. Peter Brook. <laughs> um, but, and I remember when, you know, virtually everyone was reading The Empty Space and, and right. it was, it was yeah. the kind of book you had to read and memorize. Right. And going to see that. the Maba, Mahabharaba. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and it and it's great, but 30 or 40 years on, if I look at the empty space and I look at Blau's blooded thought, say, yeah. um Blau seems far more important to me. Yeah. I disagree a lot with Brooke. I love Brooke. I'm not, this is no casting no aspersion on yeah, Brooke. Right. Brooke is Brooke. Um, but but I think, well, you know, I'm not so sure. And and but when I turn to Blau, I am sure. I, I it, it's it's a, it's an extraordinarily important body of, of writing that he produced. And yeah. um and he's the only American, you know. Um sure. and he, he sort of um you know intersp dispersed through all this other stuff or occasional comments about the American theater doesn't understand any of what I'm talking about here. Yes. Um, and that it, and I remember one thing he said, he said, it is astonishing that 
I can find so few, maybe none, directors in American theater who think philosophically about theater. Yeah, almost and, none. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. and he said, I find a few in Europe, I find none in the United States. Yeah. And it was, you know, speaking of relief, I mean, it was, it was comforting because I thought, well, yeah, I, this is my experience. And I thought, you know, maybe I was an alien. And um, because it, it takes you so long, you know, when I started out, and of course, I kind of started at Padua. Yeah. Um, but, but then when I, you know, which was a which was a, you know, um, a refuge and and um, a place of safety because when I ventured into the, the American theater, the world of the American theater, it was um, it was a nightmare, um, and and you know that's when I was introduced to ah well so this is what you actually teach at a lot of MFA programs that's amazing, yeah and um, and it was so kind of diametrically opposed to what I was doing, what I thought theater meant, what I had seen you and Mednick and Irene and everybody at Padua do, um, that uh, it, it, it was the first kind of perspective I had on just how far outside the mainstream Padua was, for example, or what writers like us were, were doing, that it was not, um, it was not an acceptable thing. I remember when I did Sea of Cortez in New York. Uh, yeah. Somebody, somebody foolishly decided to produce it in New York. <laughs> um, a very nice guy, actually, that I'm still in touch with, Damian Gray. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, oh, I, but, him. I remember him. Yeah. yeah. And and um, it was a terrific production, and um, and I was very happy with it. And Mac Wellman came opening night yeah and afterwards he came up he said you know no it's brilliant it's great and it was all he said all these nice things he said yeah. and you're going to get terrible reviews <laughs> i just want you to know that he said just <laughs> you know you don't pander to the audience nearly enough you don't and... pander to the audience at all <laughs> <laughs> and um he said um uh, a dying pornographer, a cancer-ridden pornographer at a fake cancer clinic in Baja is not a subject fit for the American stage. And yeah. you just have to know that. Yeah. Um, and he was right, of course. Um, but, but yeah, it, 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 it speaks to, um, I mean, Blau should be enshrined as like, you know, the, uh, the god of American theater. I mean, nobody else wrote as perceptibly or deeply or intelligently about American theater as Blau. Um, but, but a lot of people, you know, who th theoretically are um, theater artists don't know him. So yes, yes. You know, incidentally, uh, it just struck a bell that uh, Richard Gilman, uh, his book, uh, The Making of the Modern Theater, which I like a lot. It's in that Peter Burke vein, you know, Mm -hmm. But uh, he could not tolerate Blau's prose, <laughs> and uh, I think I think there's something in Blau that uh, it, he safeguarded himself in a real way with that you know his the naturalness because he you know he thought like an Elizabethan his his yeah. sentences yeah. Yeah. just keep 
evolving in in and of themselves they keep re-exploring what he's saying within a, a paragraph and uh uh i don't know that blau will ever catch on and it may be good if he doesn't right right because so much of you know he had a real theater life at one point by real theater life i meant he was in the he came from uh, uh, civil engineering or chemical engineering and he didn't know anything of, you know but he was a quick study and he just fell in love with theater and he started to do play i mean he did the moon is blue was the first play he did in san francisco <laughs> and he taught himself you know and pretty soon he was doing the balcony you know he's doing Genet, yeah. he was doing unesco he was doing beckett and the productions he did uh i saw most of the ones he writes about in the impossible theater and uh they were for the most part really the best productions I've ever seen of those plays, especially yeah. the Beckett, his Beckett stuff. And uh, then this, what happened with him was he experienced the nightmare in another way. They invited him uh, in 1964 with Jules Irving to go to Lincoln Center, you know, because they read this book, The Impossible Theater, and they said, this is the guy who can save Lincoln Center. Yeah. And he came in with, uh, Okay, I'll save it. I'll do Danton's Death as my first production. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can do Danton's Death, period. <laughs> the Germans maybe come up, you know, if they did readings of it, it might play. It's a great play. I mean, it's one of my favorite. I think it's the greatest political play ever written, besides not only being political. But, uh, and, you know, they killed him and uh, they kept killing him. And yeah. by the time, you know, they, they got him to resign, uh, you know, they beat him down in New York, essentially. And uh, he was very wounded and he kind of retired to his office for six months and didn't come out, you know, and then realized I've got to do something entirely different. And uh, I think he said goodbye to the theater as we know it. And he began his collectives, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, working out of Oberlin and then uh, taking it on the road. Uh, there's a, a wonderful late book about him called The Thought of Herbert Blau. Oh, uh, I don't know it. Good. It came out recently and it has a lot of articles about the people with, with the people who worked with him. And, uh, you know, they were all totally, I mean, it, it almost became like cult-like because he was working them eight to 10 hours a day you know, without interference for six months before they put anything on the stage. That's so great. Yeah. And uh, Julie Taymor and Bill Irwin, and Julie Taymor, you know, is so divided because she obviously loves him so much and said, finally, Bill and I just had to run away. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't stand it. You know, we, we couldn't stand it. We just had to run away. And of course they ran away and each one started uh, their own uh, theatrical universe there. But it uh, it got you know it wasn't an easy uh, it wasn't an easy uh, existence for him in that world because uh, he, he he stepped out. No, of well, I, would, I would imagine not. Um, you know, when you think about it now, because I knew he had been at Lincoln Center, I, but you think about it now, Blau at Lincoln Center, and it's yeah, it 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 was destined um, to be a tragic interlude. 
um, because the institution, American institutional anything is um, is death. You know, yeah. it it um, it it's it's there to it's there to kill art finally. Yeah, and, um, I remember one night uh, I had just left in middle of some act in at Lincoln Center, and I was sitting at the O'Neill Bar across the street, and there was some indigent guy walking along along the curbside and it was raining and he bent over and he scooped up some water in his hands. And I said, now that's theater. <laughs> um, it had more relevance to me than anything I'd seen on the stage, you know. Uh, I'm gonna, I wanna read a quote here um, that, that I tripped across. It's, it's in a, a little blog post I wrote from 2014 and it's, it's was written in 375 AD. Um, so there you go. I have a Chinese uh, painter, Zong yeah. Bing. Yeah. And to, it's one of my favorite quotes. So I just wanted to stick uh -huh. that. In yeah. It says, not seeking out a resemblance. The formula is definitive. Does not mean distrusting all semblance, but rather achieving a resemblance that does not resemble. <laughs> uh, that's and, wonderful yeah that and i pardon could you do that again yeah i will Please. happily yeah. not seeking out a resemblance the formula is definitive does not mean distrusting all semblance but rather achieving a resemblance that does not resemble oh, beautiful yeah, it's 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 one of my favorite quotes. It's one of those I think. Well, I could, if I could just meditate on this for a while, yeah, um, and give it to students because this is the essence, one of the essences of what we do, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and yet, um, you know, it's it's very far away. I don't know what happened with with with. Um, you know, academia. You can probably tell me more than um, than anyone, in a sense, the the state of because you taught for a while in New York. I've taught yeah. forever, yeah, I mean, <laughs> fifty six years, John. <laughs> and here's the thing, John, I can't tell you anything. <laughs> uh, it has to do with uh, a lapse in my own understanding of. Uh, anything beyond what went on in my classrooms, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think some of it is very, very good. I mean, it's about students connecting to teachers and that's what's important where you suddenly have this exchange and it's vital on both ends. But I, I can't say anything about uh, uh, the, um, what is that called? The curriculum. When people yeah. ask me, when people ask me, you know, where I worked or what I did for a living, uh, instead of saying I was a professor, blah blah blah, Tisch School of the Arts, I say I worked for a low-level criminal organization. <laughs> <laughs> and well, uh, and they look at me, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I've. I've obviously I I have in workshops I've taught I've had a number of students who have gone through MFA programs some yeah. some got their MFAs and yeah. they tell me stories that 
are almost impossible to believe, really. Yeah. You know? um, and and uh, I think, you know, um, just forget everything you were told. I mean, that's my best advice. We're going to start all over again here um, because none of what I'm hearing is, is, is it, it's just completely alien to, to creation, to art and, and yeah. to what I think art does, you know, and yeah. whatever awakening we're supposed to take away from art. Um, and it's, you know, it's very tricky. I mean, the, 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 uh, I left the U S in 1999, actually. Uh -huh. And I've been back a couple of times briefly um, once for a year and once for a few weeks and that's it. Um, so that, you know, in 20 years, I've, I've not been back home much, but um, uh, I felt an enormous relief when I, when I went away and I've, and I've not regretted it. I'm homesick all the time. Yeah. You know, people say, do you miss, I said, Oh my God, I, you know, um, I have a kind of constant heartache of, of homesickness, of course, but I, but I don't want to go home yeah. um, because it's, it's worse now, you know, it's brutal. Much. And, and um, there you know is what's happening now, uh, as far as I can see, because I have a number of former students that are doing quite well and they're very good. I mean, mm. they're very good. But what's happening, you know, the, the whole effort to get away from Broadway and we all, you know, the patter was probably the paradigm for the best of what happened there. Uh, and we went small, you know, and we met, we were, we didn't even think of ourselves as being marginalized, but, you know, we were outside. We were outside what used to be what I think of as uh, the cultural theatrical norm, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, the last time you could talk about a classic American play, say, you know, was <laughs> Streetcar and Death of a Salesman. Yeah, but but yeah. Uh, yeah. And okay, you can add maybe Angels in America, you know, uh, uh, with a caveat. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course now you can add Hamilton, but I I, I couldn't watch more than an act of that on TV. Uh, the issue is that what used to constitute something that got into the culture, uh, right. we were working outside that. You know. And the, right. the idea there, as you, you mentioned before, uh, uh, the, the Sea of Cortez, you know, mm. and just off the record, John, that is just about one of the greatest American plays that hasn't been written, okay? But like, it won't be registered in the books. <laughs> no, 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 indeed. Okay, and the same is true for Irene. I just read What of the Night for, you know, I finally had the courage after two <laughs> prior readings and seeing it, a couple of pieces from it at Padua, which I knew was good, but I suddenly realized, hey, this is up there with the very best that's ever been written. You right. Know? Or I reread Murray's, uh, actually two or three times, Mrs. Feuerstein. And mm. I said, this, if I ever come back as a teacher again, I will teach this with a streetcar named Desire because it's every bit as good and it deserves every bit as much attention, but it will never get that attention. No, no, no. So that's, you know, that's part of the relevance. 
yeah it is it is um it's um no i mean i i think i think back now and um you know i i haven't i didn't do my i mean you know i in since i moved to europe and now i'm in norway um, but I went from Paris to London to Poland. I got a job at the film school, the National Film School in Łódź. It was a great gig, you know, by I was locked into the Polish economy. And on those terms, I was paid very well. And I had a lot of cachet and it was it was pretty cool. And it was a it was a fun gig because I just watched movies. But um, I did put together one one production while I was there. I, I did a sort of experimental King Lear and uh, in three languages simultaneously with two leers on stage. And I, I just went up to Marian Opania is a well-known Polish actor, older guy. And he's, he's in some way, he's like the Polish Joe Pesci or something. Huh? <laughs> and, um, uh, and I went to him and said, I do want to do Lear. And he didn't know me from, I said, I teach at the film school. And he goes, nobody ever asks me to do that. Of course I'll do it. And he was great. I mean, he didn't he yeah. didn't object to the experimental part of it at all. He was just wonderful, and he was brilliant. He was just brilliant. Yeah. And um, I had a terrific um, Polish actress who was doing two languages, Isabella Nowakowski, um, and and then a, a, some English actors. Mick Collins was the other oh, Lear, and. Um, and it was extraordinary. And we just played around with it for as long as we could and kept cutting and pasting and, and doing it in three lines, the third language being Norwegian because I had two Norwegian actresses. And, um, and we had two performances. And I think it's maybe the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. But, you know, uh, 70 people saw it, you know. Yeah. Well, and that's it got, quite, it got a yeah. rave review in the Polish paper, oddly enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, that was a lot. That was a lot of work for two performances yeah. in um, the industrial heartland of Poland, <laughs> not even in Warsaw. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I had. I have two, yeah, two responses to that. Number one, uh, it reminds me that, you know, something I can't stand thinking about, but which is really the basis of what I think of as our heroism, uh, that everything disappears on us in theater. You know, everything is about, even Meryl Streep knew this. What we're all doing, she once, I think she once quoted in her, when they kind of were talking about her as mother courage. Uh, and she says, you know, all we're doing is playing ghosts. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's really quite profound. and. And ghosts live in a world in which is there and not there. They haunt, and we're haunted, and we give the haunting. Yeah, uh, yeah. that was my first response. My second response uh, is that listening to you, well, this is something I, I felt in the past, but now it's it's coming clear. Uh, have you ever thought of doing a memoir? John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody has lived your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, people have told me that and, and I probably will, I feel um, myself inching closer to it. I'm not there yet, but, okay. um, but at some point um, I will, I was thinking about it oddly enough the other day because I was reading something about, you know, New York in the 
late 60s and early 70s and I was thinking no 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 you're not capturing at all what I remember yeah uh, and, and um you know maybe I at some point I'm going to have to put this down on paper and and talk about the whole thing yeah because but, yeah. You're, you're so totally an American creature uh, and at the same time, what you've done is you've extended your boundaries into places just very few American artists have gone or will ever go, you know. Well, it's interesting. That's, I, <clears throat> I was asked to do a little five-minute video for, for this Susan Hayden's group in LA and, and uh, ostensibly on Nina Simone. And so I, I had nothing to say about Nina Simone, but I did it. But, but what I touched on kind of unconsciously came out in that five minutes was, was um, the notion of exile. Um, and Adorno is, you know, was obsessed with the topic partly because he was exiled. And um, then when he returned to Germany after the war, um, they were already rehabilitating all these Nazis and friends of Heidegger and stuff. And he was surrounded by, you know, a whole faculty of anti-Semites and, 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 you know, rehabilitated national socialism. And it, you know, it just caused him agony. And, and, um, and he was, he, it probably really caused his early death in a sense, but, mm -hmm. Um, uh, and it, but throughout that period upon his return is when he really started meditating on exile and the notion yeah. of exile. And I mean, yeah. you see it a little bit in, in, um, dialectic of enlightenment, the idea of Odysseus as a sort of first bourgeois man. And, and, um, but it, it, it pertains to theater. Adorno is always, <laughs> for me anyway, always feels like he's actually writing about theater and he doesn't quite realize it. Um, but, you know, I wanted to, to go back um, also to, to touch upon, you know, Streetcar Named Desire and, and Death of a Salesman. And, and because I, I've been writing a number of times over the last few years, a kind of defense of abstract expressionism, because I, I feel like the left loves these stories about, oh, it was actually a CIA plot, you know? Yeah. Um, and I said, well, no, they tried to fund it, but you know, you're know, you casting aspersion on a bunch of immigrant Marxists, you know, and mostly Jewish um, artists. And, um, and, and it, but it got me thinking about why I think they're so important. And, um, I think one of the one of the things, and I've said this before, but one of the things is that it was the last time art was sincere. Uh -huh. It was like pre-ironic. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it feels accusative today, I think, to a lot of people. Um, Gerhard Richter is one of the few painters who's really articulate about things. And, and yeah. he's a he's a great fan of Barnett Newman, interestingly. Um, but but he kind of um, intimates the same thing when he talks about them. Uh, it, it, uh, it, 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 and the same is true in a certain kind of way, you could say the same thing about Tennessee Williams. Um, there, there's something, maybe it was inevitable and maybe it's not even a bad thing necessarily, but something 
of that sincerity got lost after yeah. mid-century somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I and I think and I think it's it's you one as an artist needs to at least be aware of that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, it's not a prescription to be, to be sincere, but um, but you need to be aware of your own insincerity or something, which seems yeah. inevitable, right? I don't know. Yeah, I uh, have an extension of that. Uh, as you were talking, I remembered uh, the first time at Padua when Sam Shepard came to visit and we went out for a drink and uh, uh, he had been very gracious to me on, you know, in terms of the first play I had down at the Magic Theater. Uh, I didn't know him and he wrote me a very nice note uh, after he saw the play and said he would, Pearl Diver, he'd rarely been moved in the theater as much as he had. And then he recommended me to Murray. Um, and mm -hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to, I knew, you know, there could be no two more opposite people than yeah. Sam. <laughs> and I just want to interject because I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. But okay. just the record, Sam was incredibly gracious to me as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he just was unfailingly um, supportive and 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 gracious. That's the word. He was wonderful yeah. with me. Anyway, okay. He had that 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 thing. Uh, we can talk more about him later because I think he is so iconic in, in in so many ways in terms of what you know where we're all thinking about constantly. Uh, and. Uh, so we went into this bar and, you know, I just wanted to tell Sam one thing <laughs> that might be useful. <laughs> and, you know, we were just kidding around and uh, somehow it came out, you know, that uh, I said, Sam, well, you know, I, I don't want to alarm you or anything, but uh, uh, it seems to me that America, the American theater doesn't allow its playwrights to mature. <laughs> That's great. He just looked at me, you know, and uh, I think for revenge, he might have named his the character in Fool for Love, Martin, <laughs> the doofus. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I, you know, I ran into him. This is the, my other Sam Shepard story was I, yeah. I ran into him a couple of years after he stopped coming to Padua and, yeah. and um, in a bookstore in Los Angeles. Yeah. And um, I said, Sam, he said, oh, John, hi, kind of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I said, what are you buying? And he, he said, I, I don't know. Pick a book for me and I'll pick one for you. <laughs> Wonderful. And I said, okay. And so I yeah. went and got him um, a, a paperback, the collected works of Von Kleist. Oh. And gave it to him. And he gave me um, Farmyard and Other Plays by Kreutz. Yeah. Well thought that was because I loved that at the Kreutz as it turned yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You both chose well. I'm sure uh, that's one of the great, great books, the Von Kleist. Uh, oh my God, yeah. I never stop thinking about that guy, yeah. Well, yeah. the essay on puppet theater, you know that, of yes, course. Yes, 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 um, yes. Really, I've returned to that a lot. Um, uh, it's it's uh, a kind of seminal piece. Yeah, von Kleist is is extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yeah. There's uh, uh, when Sam was in New York doing Carol Churchill's uh, play. I think it was called uh, Far Away. I'm not sure what play it was, but the New York Theater Workshop. He was uh, doing her play, 
and uh, I remember going to it and uh, when he made his entrance, uh, it was just, just watching him come out of the dark and cross the stage and take a seat on the couch. I had this feeling that I've just witnessed one of the bravest things a human being can do. <laughs> and this is before the play even began, <laughs> but it had yeah. begun. In other words, uh, we had a form of this conversation years ago uh, uh, in our, uh, uh, our, I think we did a three-way uh, with uh, Marowitz one time. And you oh, mentioned uh, it'd be really interesting to know what goes on in an actor's mind when he takes the stage, when he gets on the stage, you know? Yeah. And that moved me to think of, you know, well, wait a minute, an actor doesn't just get on the stage, an actor takes the stage. It's a very aggressive act. Boy, this is a great topic. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, because I think, um, you know, there's all these paradoxes uh, involved in, and because I've often asked that of students, what is it you think an actor does? What is he doing? Yeah. I mean, what is acting, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, because it's not, you're not trying to fool the audience that you're this other thing. It's a performance. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? I think one of the secret elements, and I, and I've tried to articulate this or explore it in, in on the blog a couple of times and stuff is this this idea of repetition you know, probably because i'm such a freudian but um that that the repetitions in rehearsal those endless repetitions and memorization of yeah. text is a crucial aspect um and uh it it there is something of the residue of that the the obsessional aspect of repetition that an actor carries with him yeah onto yeah. the stage um that is not that he can't undo or or control even really you know it's it's um i mean there's so many topics here we could have a discussion about you know what actor the various responses of actors to forgetting their lines oh yeah you wrote that beautiful essay for the padua um yeah. thing and talking about murray when he went up yeah um, in my play and i you know it his performance was still extraordinary it didn't matter that's right because murray it was murray <laughs> sitting there to be right. this presence this like hebraic sage presence yeah and um, but I've had other actors who, you know, there's certain kind of panic will occur and, and, um, you know, it's, it's a very complicated dynamic. And I always think of Artaud too, you know, the actors are, are never more themselves when they're least to themselves kind of thing, you know, that naked moment when the, when the lights come up. And, yeah. Um, there was always a nanosecond of panic, right? As, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's a it's a really terrific, it's a really interesting kind of never-ending mysterious topic for yeah. me. There's a wonderful book, which uh, I can't praise enough. It's a little known work. It's one of the early works of Kierkegaard called Crisis in the Life of an Actress. Oh my God. And he wrote it, he was, a, he started out as a theater critic. 
Huh. This yeah. is a book all about, you know, he wrote another book called Repetition, which is really worth yeah, reading. That I know. Yeah, yeah. Crisis in the Life of an Actress deals with what, uh, very briefly, uh, he, he says when, you know, uh, if you take the role of Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, the program should read, you know, when, when a young actress plays the role, uh, the program should read the role of Juliet played by Miss X and her luck. <laughs> As opposed to when a 40-year-old actress plays Juliet, you know, who really knows what it means to fall in love and lose love, you know, over and over again. And he describes this in the sense of uh, also what happens when a just through the process of rehearsal, uh, what we love, especially about youthful actors, what we love about them is the sense of lightness, you might say, relief through their lightness that they bring to us. Hmm. And he said, but that lightness is accomplished as a result of hidden, umpteen hidden, hidden hours of incredible weightlifting. <laughs> yeah, that's so great by yeah. rehearsing over and over again. And then they bring out this, oh, look what I can do. And they fly across the stage. You know? Yeah, that's a great quote. Uh, and um, we think, you know, oh, how talented, what genius. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, it, it's, there's a, there's a, a really, I mean, it is such a complicated topic because, um, you also factor in, and I think about this a lot, the way in which um, TV and film recording images change people's behavior. You know, um, uh, Dawson City, that film that was out last year, they found all this archival um, black and white uh, movie reels buried and they showed, and it was interesting to watch just you know, shots of people walking down the street before they realized what it was to have a camera huh. recording them. Yeah. They behaved differently, right? Oh, yeah. And um, and but you can see it in in film acting. Certainly, the the evolution of um, of uh, of performance for the camera, um, and and you certainly see it with uh, with 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 actors on stage now. I mean, it's very um, it's a, it's, and this is, this is, you know, the panic at the moment is when does that return? Are we going to get live theater again in the immediate yeah. future? I, you know, I don't know. No, um, <laughs> but it's I'm, I'm carrying on, you know, I think I mentioned to you, Chiorin once said, even if all the theaters were closed, Beckett would still write plays. And I don't think yeah. that's true. <laughs> yeah, well, I will still write plays. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, you know, I, you know what I do, what I have found myself doing, because I have no way to get plays produced. Anymore. I, you know, we're doing these, these pod plays, kind of little radio plays, and that's amusing. Um, but I write plays, I have, you know, drawer full of plays that are 99% finished. Right. But I can't bring myself to finish them. Yeah, gotcha. then I have to kind of let go of them and they're going to stay in the drawer, you know. Yeah. Um, so I have 99% of the play finished and I have, you know, a half dozen of those things. 
so it's yeah it's it's um theater is you know uh extraordinarily important and it's extraordinarily disruptive you know it's always going to be a disruptive medium to the for, for the status quo i think and that's that's the problem so it's always going to be kind of under assault in some way um what was there was a quote of um oh god i'll never remember it of heiner mueller's um and now i can't remember i said it on one of the other podcasts um but anyway um yeah i i uh i uh, look forward to the the padua book coming out because i we can talk very kind of briefly about padua i think just yeah. quickly but because I love your essay, and I thought it was was extraordinary, and it motivated me, inspired me to write a little piece. Oh, and, thank you, John. That's great. Um, it it uh, it's interesting to to look back because I don't think I certainly didn't quite realize quite how outside the mainstream that was. What we did was, yeah. and the reason I brought it back up was. I think that nobody realizes the the effect that that company of actors was doing something um, really interesting that evolved over the the decade of Padua, decade yeah. and change of Padua, um, and and it probably influenced you know at least at least theater in Southern California was certainly influenced by yeah. by um, the actors if nothing else that that kind of graduated from there, but. Um, it's a, the, you know, the tragedy is I, f I feel like that's so impossible today, anything like that, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It would have to be a different, would, it would probably look different the next time. It yeah, it would, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> but, you know, once, once, is, once was really once, you know, and I'm, I'm, I don't think about it that often in quite this way, but maybe... I should. I remember Irene once just in conversation with a bunch of us was saying, you people, you people, you don't realize what we have here. It's, it's paradise. It's paradise. I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's, I remember, <laughs> I remember her saying that. I would add to that because uh, I was thinking about that every now and then I go back to Dante and try to finish. I never quite gotten through the Paradiso, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, how do you read a book in which uh, there's 33 chapters in which uh, the joy just keeps expanding? There's no uh, <laughs> there's no tension, <laughs> except if you speak Italian and you can read the verse. But what's wonderful, uh, I'll never forget, was uh, early on in even the first or third canto or second canto, Dante warns the reader uh, it says, uh, up till now, I'm paraphrasing, of course, up until now, uh, I've been your guide the way Virgil, Virgil was my guide. But from this point on, you're on your own. And be very <laughs> careful because if your little boat isn't well made, this is where you'll wreck. <laughs> and it's just made me so happy to hear this. <laughs> yeah. Because 
it gave me an immediate explanation as to why we live so much more of our time in hell and purgatory than we do in paradise. Paradise, yeah. <laughs> because, well, yeah, and yeah. Virgil, I love Virgil, actually. Yeah, yeah. One of the twins, you know, I have two twin sons who are almost four now. Um, the, Alfred's middle name is Virgil. Oh, lovely. And Axel's middle name is Cicero. So. Oh, wonderful. There you go. Um, and and the, we, we, I was talking with my wife about it. She said, well, because you love those poets. I said, well, yeah, I do. But also, they're simultaneously named after Virgil Earp, who was Wyatt Earp's brother, because I like that connection <laughs> and I like that folklore. And Cicero is also named after Cicero Murphy, who oh, was the first Black pocket billiards champion in uh, America. Oh, uh, oh. Uh. And I remember when, as a boy, I saw a news clip when I'm like eight years old uh, of, uh, I don't know, the first black pocket. And I thought he was the coolest looking guy. I yeah. have. It's, it's, this absolutely hip, beautiful, trim, black pocket billiards player, pool uh -huh. player. Named, yeah. and, and then he had the coolest name in the world. He was called Cicero Murphy. Yeah. I never forgot it. So yeah. here you yeah. are. All right. Well, listen, Martin, we can do this again. We should I would love to, John. Absolutely. Um, so much to talk about. And it's, yeah. it's um, there's, you know, I can think of a dozen other topics. So um, whenever you feel like it, let's do it. Okay. okay. I'm, uh, I'm going to be going into some cataract surgery the first two weeks in November. So probably after December sometime. Okay. All right. Well, good luck with that. That's yeah. um, well. Let's we can keep in touch, you know, and just say hello. And uh, yeah, yeah. No, please do. And I, I thank you for doing this because it's an absolute pleasure. Well, this um, is my this is my virginal trip in Zoom, John. And you, I'm already addicted. I'm gonna get eight. Yeah, I know. See, it's, uh, it's scary. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, all right. Well, good. Anyone? Do we Pardon? have to pay for this, by the way? No, no. Are you kidding? I, I don't know. No, I'm asking. Yeah. No, no. This, okay. this, I hope be up tonight. Um, the great Jack Littman, who is uh, invaluable to aesthetic resistance and everything we do. Thank um, him for me. Uh, and and uh, we'll get it up and I will send you a link and um, and uh, we'll, you know, hopefully talk again after Christmas then maybe. Very good. Yeah. All right, man. Okay, Thank buddy. you so Take much. Take care. Right. Okay, you too. Stay Bye. safe. Bye.